to turn in your Bibles to the 8th chapter of the book of Luke. And as we begin, the dynamic master and part 1. And so I want to encourage you that this whole series of events that happens in the Gospel are not disassociated one from another. And they are the cumulative story of the events that Jesus undertook, really as his career uh, in Galilee, you might say, as he was wandering through the region. And so these things are all linked. And one of the problems that a lot of people have is they read maybe one parable and then they skip over and read someplace else. And though that's beneficial and helpful to some degree, it actually helps to take them uh, as they're delivered here, because they are chronologically at least kind of in order. So you get a picture of the things that Jesus was going through and kind of the way he was going through them. And so this morning we begin kind of with a, a parabolic interlude, if you will, a short two-part interlude. And the first one is actually a parable. And then Jesus is going to go on to uh, give us yet another parable about the storms of life. And so this morning... Uh, as we begin, I would remind you uh, that you all uh, are lamps. We are lamps. We're, we're intended to be bearers of light. We are supposed to be the light to the world. Jesus is the light of the world, but as He left and, and passed along the torch, if you will, we now bear the light of the world to the world. We are those lamps. And so as we look at this first little interlude, it is an interesting thing to me when I ponder Christians who believe that they can be disciples, be members of the body of Christ, and yet shed very little, if any, light. In fact, sometimes even walk in darkness. And it's not to be critical. It's simply to say that as God's kids... As the body of Christ, we're supposed to be bearing light. We should be visibly different than the world. And so this morning, the dynamic master in part one, and let's pray and ask God to bless. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for this church, for these people. Lord, for them dedicating their time this morning to be here. And pray that you would take your word now and speak to us through it. Lord, help me to step aside, to not confuse, Lord, to just simply bring the truth of what you've already said uh, into view, that we might grow and learn from it. We bless you, we praise you, offer this time, God, for you to speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And notice, if you will, before we move on to verse 16, the end of verse 15, and it says, Keep the word and bear fruit. With patience. In other words, keep the seed. Remember, the seed from the last parable is that the Word of God. It's what we sow. It's what we toss out before the world, if you will. And so he says to bear that fruit with patience. And now he comes to this interesting little interlude. No one, it says in verse 16, when he has his lit his lamp, in other words, when, when you come into that relationship with the Lord, you begin to walk with the Lord, and there's evidence of the body of uh, Christ uh, at work in your life as well as the rest of the body. When you see the light begin to shine, when, when there's something evident, uh, is the picture here. But in a practical way, he's reminding them uh, of, of what would be very, very normal living in that day and age. Uh, unlike us today with our multiplicity, if you go to Home Depot or Lowe's and you walk through the light bulb section, how many light bulbs are there? There's like nine million of them, right? And they come in every shape and size and configuration. And, you know, you've got the little candelabra ones and you've got the LED ones now. They're like $700 a piece. And you, you put them in. They're supposed to last 2,000 years, but I'm not planning on being here. And, and so you have all of these, these lights. And so we can look at it from that way. But in that day and time, they had a very simple clay lamp. And they were a little tiny, sometimes just a saucer with a wick in it, and the wick would hang up in the edge of the saucer. Sometimes they were enclosed, and the wick would come out of the point. I'm sure you've probably seen the little clay lamps. 
Um, but they were a very simple thing, and they usually contained olive oil. That was the normal thing that was burned in them. And, and so they, they didn't have these monumental light fixtures like we have. They had clay lamps. And in that lamp was a very precious substance, oil, and that oil was burned to give light, and they did not do what we do, which is the moment you come, especially if you have kids, every light in the house is on, right? They just walk in, they just begin to flip light switches. Before you know it, your electrical meter is going so fast that it can be a fan. And so they didn't do that. They would have like one little lamp, maybe two in, in a little tiny space, and you would light it, and they'd have to huddle near it to get some light. And so it's important to see it in context of the time. They, would take that, they wouldn't waste the lamplight. They wouldn't waste the oil. It was very expensive, it was precious, and it was used sparingly according to need. And so now look at it with regard to your walk with the Lord. So here is the lamp. When you've lit the lamp, you wouldn't dream of covering it with another pot. Amen? You light the lamp, put it on some kind of table, and then cover it with a pot? That makes no sense. That's crazy. It's a waste. They wouldn't think of doing it. Or puts it under a bed. Light your lamp. Kind of lift up the edge of the cover. Shove it underneath there. Boy, I'm still in darkness. You see, he's speaking very plainly and very simply to them. And so he says, but he sets it on a lampstand. And a lampstand during that time was typically like a tripod of sticks. They would just simply cross them over, lash them together, and you could take the oil lamp or the saucer and put it in the top of that tripod. It would just simply sit there. And the reason being is that the, the lamp was lifted up off the floor. It threw a little more light down towards the areas where people might be sitting and conversing or perhaps even maybe reading something. Perhaps they had a scroll of some kind. If they were fortunate enough to maybe have a, a copy of one of the Old Testament biblical manuscripts. But they would not hide the light, that's certain, but puts it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. And so when people came to your house, you don't want them tripping over your dog or your goat or, you know, your kids who are asleep on the floor. You would want them to be able to see. And so you lift it up, and there it is. And now he goes on, for nothing is secret that will not be revealed. And so he begins the application. The light goes forth. It's supposed to come out. Nor is anything... There is, nor is there anything that will not be known and come to light. In other words, light exposes, as D.L. Moody put it. He says, where there's light, there's bugs. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones said much the same thing. When you turn on the light, the bugs scurry. You, you, you see, light exposes darkness. That's what it does. And the darkness has to flee. It's an interesting concept, because realistically, darkness is nothing but the absence of light. That's all it is. Light always wins over darkness. It may not be a lot of light, but any light, it is no longer dark. If there's a tiny smidgen of light, it's still not dark. It may be dim, but the light wins. And Jesus declared of himself, I am the light of the world. He said, I came into the world that the men of this world might see, but they did not love the light, they loved the darkness. And therefore, take heed how you hear. Notice he's not talking about light anymore, amen? At least light directly. He now begins the parabolic application of it. For whoever has... In other words, if you've got a little bit of light, any light you've come into a relationship with, to him more will be given. You see, now it's back to the lamp analogy. If you have a little bit of light and you want some more light, it doesn't do you any good to put out the first one. Amen? Why would you light a second one if you've put out the first one? 
Why would there be any need for more light when you're not using the available light? Light is meant to be cumulative. If you need more light, you first have to be out of the darkness. So he's giving the picture of our salvation. Once I come to Christ, my goal should be to have some more light. I want to walk in light. And whoever does not have even what he, notice the word seems, to have. There are a lot of people that think they have light, amen? There are a lot of people wandering around this earth that believe that they have light, when in fact what they have is secular humanism or existentialism. What they have is the philosophy of our day. Perhaps they have some good, warm, fuzzy feelings, but what they do not actually have is the light because they've never walked with the Lord. They've never come into relationship with Him. And Paul, as he was writing the church at Corinth there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, made it very clear that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. That, that we come to know the things of God by being one of His kids. And until that happens, you got a tough time even absorbing some light so that you can give it out. Even that will be taken from him. And so he begins to say, really, for us this morning, make sure that you're hearing well, that you're hearing often, that you hear purposefully, that you hear the Word. Because if you stop taking in the Word, you don't have a whole lot of light to give out. One of the things that that is problematic for us as believers is when we get out of fellowship, when we stop having a devotional life, when we're not seeking to be Bereans ourselves, when you're not studying the Word, not just coming to church, though that's wonderful and you should do that. It's what we come to do is to study the Word, to worship Him, to fellowship. Those things are all wonderful. But we're supposed to be hearers of the Word, not just on Sundays. We're not supposed to be hearers of the Word just on Wednesday nights. Or maybe you come to the ladies' study or the men's study. Maybe you do something on a relatively regular basis where you take in a little of the Word. We're supposed to be careful hearers. We're we're supposed to be spiritual sponges, if you will. It's a great way to look at it. We want to absorb the Word when it comes to us. Unsaved people, that doesn't really happen to them. They kind of hear the Word and they go, well, I don't really like that. I don't like what it says. I I don't like the, the, the... things that God's trying to say to me. And because they don't see it as something that's transformational, they have a tough time getting any further down the road. The Lord is speaking here to His own citizens. He's not speaking to unsaved people. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to the multitude. And He's reminding them. He's going, look, you guys are disciples. You're followers of Christ. And so to some degree, he gives them this ability to have this aha moment. This is something that I can now own. Okay, here's my lamp. I've got a little bit of oil in it. I should want a lot of oil. I want a lot of light. We should want that as the body of Christ. So Jesus now begins to unwrap it for us. Obviously, uh, we are the lamp. You can make the application that the Holy Spirit is the oil because the Holy Spirit comes in you. Amen? dwells in you when you get saved, and Jesus himself is a light. And so you can get the picture. You guys are a lamp. We want to be filled with the Spirit, and we want the Lord to be able to work now out of us by that light that he's put in us. We have no light apart from the light that he puts in us. Amen? He's the light of the world. He puts it in us so that we can give it out. And so he says, kind of check this out, if you will. He, he, he's like, guys, nobody's going <laughs> to... No, None of you, not one of you is going to go to your house and, and turn on your lights and, and then walk around the house with a bunch of duct tape and tape over all the fixtures. None of you are going to grab a flashlight out of your nightstand and turn the flashlight on and throw it underneath your bed. You're not going to do it. That would be senseless. It would be purposeless. And the same is true to have the light of the world in you and then do nothing with it. And so he adds a warning here. He says, take heed how you hear. Be careful. And here's why. If you remember in in 1 John chapter 1, and it says there beginning in verse 5, for this is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you. Very important message. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. None. No darkness. Light goes on. You're supposed to get brighter 
and brighter and brighter and brighter. No darkness. But if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie. If we say we're God's kids, if we say we have some of that light, and then we continue to walk in darkness, we're not being truthful. Because when the light goes on, we're supposed to bear that light to the world. We're supposed to shine it for others to see. In fact, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that it is on a hill and not under a bushel basket so that all men might see it. And in doing so, paraphrasing, glorify your Father which is in heaven. So the whole purpose of this little interlude is to say, guys, let's be bearers of light. And he goes on there, John does, in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6, and if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. We're all little flashlights wandering around. It's like we're getting ready for the Super Bowl. And, you know, every once in a while they do one of those nighttime things where they turn everything off and they give everybody a glow stick or, you know, they tell them to take out their cell phone and turn it on. Isn't it amazing how very small lights, when gathered together, can make a brilliant display? Amen? So even if you only have a little bit of a light, maybe you're kind of dim this morning. Maybe there's some stuff going on in your life that kind of needs to go. Maybe there's some darkness that needs to be pushed out. If we will all bear a little bit of light, the whole world's going to see light. If we walk in darkness, then people might look at you or might look at me because I'm professing to be a Christian, and yet I'm walking in darkness, and they're confused about what light looks like. Now they're walking around going, oh, I don't really know. I mean, I think the Bible says you're not supposed to be that way, and you're supposed to be this way, and I'm just simply not seeing that. And so be careful is the challenge here, because walking in the light is something that we must do. Not sinful living, that's darkness. Being believers, being light, they're they're polar opposites. They're on the opposite ends of the spectrum. And really you can't do both at the same time. A little bit of light pushes out darkness. A little bit of light. This is what's so beautiful about our walk with the Lord. God isn't expecting you the moment you get saved to be perfect. Hallelujah, amen? Because if he was, we're all in deep trouble. Myself, top of the list, put me up there. If I have to be, if, I, if there was a part of me that needed to be instantaneously perfect because I had received Christ, oh boy, not good. But you know what? A little bit of light went on. And then a little later, I got yet another lamp. Maybe I learned some other scripture that I could take to heart and it was a part of my life. And as things began to get pushed out by the light, I get brighter and brighter and brighter. And so do you. And the beauty of this is, is where your light goes, maybe my light isn't shining yet. You know, not everybody comes here to, Keisha, I've noticed that. Not everybody comes to Calvary Chapel Running Springs. So they may never know who I am. Hear me. I hope I'm doing a fair job of getting the word out. But the, the point is this. Your little light is supposed to shine wherever you are. And my little light is supposed to shine wherever I am. And then when we get together, there's even a brighter light where we are cumulatively or collectively. And in doing so, the world gets a picture of Jesus. And family of God, that is absolutely what we're here to do, is to show people Jesus. And he, he kind of gives us the impression here, it's kind of use it or lose it with our light. If you don't use your light... There's not much point, and that's the end of this little interlude. If you don't use your light, why would the Lord give you more light if you're not using what you already have? Think about it for a second. And again, this is not at all to be critical. It's to simply say, if God's given you a measure of light, and that light is already hidden, nobody can see it, then I think it's safe to say, that we're probably not going to get a whole lot more light because we're not using what we have. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, go be light. Go use that light for His glory. And and the more you use it, the more He gives you. And, And the more He gives you, the more opportunity you have to be used. Those two things work together. And so, in this first little interlude, 
I'm reminded of John 8 where it says there in verse 12, And then Jesus began to speak to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. And he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And see, that's us. Little lamps, lit, not hidden, useful to the Lord. Next he begins, and we pick up in verse 19, with kind of another little interlude. There's these little tiny snippets, if you will, that bring us to the place to where Jesus is going to to make another prophetic statement, but he's also going to do it parabolically. But he says, Then his mother and his brothers came to him. If you've ever concerned yourself with with the perpetual virginity of Mary, Joseph's wife, this should help you. It says here, His mother and his brothers came to him. That would be Mary's children. Half-brother, of course, you know James. But it, it, and they could not approach him because of the crowd. And, and there's an interesting thing here. Jesus is not a respecter of persons, including mom and family. He equally grants access to all, and he alone determines those times when he is going to minister in a certain special way. And in this case, I think there's a little bit of a hint here, at least, that they were coming thinking, hey, look, we're family. We'll be able to get him. We'll be able to see him. And it was told to him by some who said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Now notice this. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He says, yeah, they're genetically my kinfolk. But my real family is those who hear the word of God and do it. Pretty much what James said, wasn't it? Be therefore doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I'll show you, go on in chapter 2, I'll show you my faith by my works. And again, this is not to say that salvation comes by any other way than God's grace through faith. But it is to say that because we are God's kids, when we begin to interact in our world, the one thing that should stand out is our relationship with the Lord. And they were coming as family. They were coming as genetically linked to Jesus, who is the Christ. And though that's a wonderful, wonderful privilege... I mean, I would have been delighted, and I'm sure you would have too, to be a half-brother to Jesus. Amen? I would have liked to have been in his family. Uh, Can you imagine what that was like? All of a sudden, you know, furniture just showed up in the shop. I I don't know. You know, I'm pretty sure Jesus worked with his hands. I doubt he made everything miraculously, but he was still God. Amen? I bet it was a wonderful thing to be in Jesus' house. And I think they were thinking the same thing. And at about this time, uh, Mary, the Lord's mother, just kind of comes to see him. The family shows up. And by this time, and this is why it's important, the crowds are following him. Remember what's happened. He started in Capernaum. He's made the journey down to Nain. He's made his way all the way back. He's almost back to Capernaum. He's stopped along the sea there at the cove of the sower. He's delivered this message. He's been on the Mount of Beatitudes. He's spoken all these wonderful things. And people are thronging around him. And and he now has a tremendous following. But because he has a tremendous following, and because of the truth that he's preaching, and because of the miracles he's doing, he is public enemy number one to the Jewish religious leadership. They hate him. The Sanhedrin is after him. The Pharisees are rebuking him. There are all kinds of people that are kind of out to get Jesus, if you will. And so in that, it's very difficult to get close to him. And so Mark's gospel kind of fills in some of the details for us in this regard. But his natural family is now saying, man, I think our Mary's over there talking to the boys. And it's just like, well, I think your brother has a Messiah complex or something. And I'm not sure what's going on. We don't know exactly what was said. We're not told. But it seems that they're kind of coming to do an intervention. We need to go save him from himself. I mean, he keeps saying these things, and now the Pharisees are after him, and the Sadducees are after him. The crowds are falling. He's totally worn out. He looks exhausted. We need to go talk some sense into Jesus. And so they show up. And they're like, 
at the edge of the crowd, and they kind of weaseled their way through. I would imagine there was probably some pride in that. That's my son. That's my boy. That's my brother who's up there. I'm sure there was a mix of emotions and things that were going on in their hearts and their minds. And again, we're not told. But you can imagine what it might have been like. And so his natural family decides something has to be done. They're going to protect him from himself, basically. Any of you ever had that experience in your walk with the Lord? Your family decides that you're completely nuts. I will never forget when Connie and I decided that God had told us that, you know, we were supposed to go to Austria. We're selling everything we have. We're packing our stuff in a storage unit. We're selling our, we're just going to give up everything and we're going to move 8,000 miles away. My dad must have said, are you sure? Like 9,000 times. Every time I talked, he just start the gun. Are you sure? Did God really speak to him? I think he did. I'm just, you know, and, and that happens. Imagine now that you're the king of kings and lord of lords, and you've got a natural family. They at this time are probably not yet saved, though they would come to Christ. But at this point in time, they're going, man, he's kind of a little bit touched. He's taking this whole God thing a little too far, we think. And I'm taking a little license here. But you can imagine what they might have been thinking. Well, he's got these crowds that fall. He doesn't even have a job. He quit the carpenter shop. He's going. He's in full-time ministry. That means he's a full-time beggar. He's got no place to... His, the Word tells us, no place for the Son of Man to lay his head. Amen? Not exactly, you know, like if you look at all of the skill sets that you'd want to have during biblical times. Prophet wasn't very high up there. They got stoned a lot, and I don't mean the kind that we can do in Colorado now. I mean absolutely rocks thrown at you and killed. I have to differentiate now because our president seems to think there's no difference in some things. But you, you, you can kind of get it. You can see how all of these things would come to bear on the human mind. It's like, what's he doing? And so they're going to come talk to him. They're going to get him down from the cliff, so to speak. And it's interesting that he basically ignores them. He doesn't even address them. He addresses the crowd. He doesn't go over and say, look, and, and we don't know if he did that additionally to this, but we know that what Luke got was, Jesus didn't talk to the family. He said, my mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. They weren't in that category yet. Mary undoubtedly already knew the Lord. But I think being influenced by the rest of the guys, they're all like, well, we don't know what to do, Mom. Let's just go talk to him. Why is this important? Because it does not matter who you're related to by birth. It matters who you're related to by second birth. To know Jesus is to know God. To know Him is to have salvation. To know Him is to be saved. And it doesn't matter if you are kinfolk of Christ. You need to be born again into the family of God. And Jesus' business on this earth was not to sort out all of the little family dynamics. Matter of fact, he would go on to say, I've actually come to separate families at times. That doesn't mean that he hates family, by the way. That simply means that there are going to be people who know him and those who don't in the same family, and it's going to cause an issue. It's going to cause you to have to make a choice to stay whom you'll serve. And so he says, look, as sacred as human ties are, as difficult as it is to be a part of my family, uh, you guys show up. The big thing that matters is that you're actually related to me by the second birth, by being born again. That's my real family. You remember what happened at the cross? John, behold my mother who's now your mother. I'm leaving. I'm leaving her here with you. You, you see, he, he understood fully 
that there was something else that had to happen. And so he goes from talking about light to talking really about being born again as being important. And so he links these things together. And then the moment he begins to do that, the moment this whole thing begins to unfold, now he goes on uh, in this wonderful story. This is a certain day. We don't know when it was. He's basically talking to people and ministering to them, so his ministry is continuing. But it begins now in verse 22, and we'll focus in in our remaining minutes on these last few verses. Because you can see the dynamic master at work here. He's speaking these words to his family. He's speaking these words to the disciples. He's saying, look guys, it's all about being light. And it doesn't matter if you're related to me. You need to know me personally. And then the very next thing we have, and now it happened on a certain day. And I love that word certain because it seems to me that if you look at the original language of the text here, that it was divinely appointed. That word certain means that it was uh, picked out of all days, and it was this day. That God himself had a plan in this, and you're going to see it even further in the rest of the story. And so he's speaking to them that on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples. Can I remind you that every one of you uh, have gotten into a boat with the disciples? We're all in it together is another way to look at it. Amen? We may have different circumstances, and, and that is certainly true. We may come from different life experiences, certainly true. Different socioeconomic backgrounds, certainly true. But we're all in the boat called the Christian life. We're, we're all at some point in time going to be confronted with being bearers of light, all these truths that have been brought to us. Are you going to be merciful? Are you going to walk by faith? You get the point? We're all going to be in that boat at some point in time. And in this case, he's going to bring to light really one thing. We're all going to be forced to either believe that he is who he says he is or not. And so he begins, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And so you can see that there's a certain day and Jesus is the one that says, hey guys, get in the boat. And I like this. And I like it for a couple of reasons. And let me give you at least two of them. Number one, He is in control of all circumstances. Whether we are the initiating cause or so it seems, or whether He directly intervenes in our lives or so it seems, He is the cause and nothing sovereignly can get in His way that He can't overcome. And so He begins to say to the guys, look, get in the boat. He does not tell them what's going to happen. Would you please note that? He doesn't, he doesn't say to them, get in the boat, there's a storm coming, I want to terrify you to death and see if you can survive. He doesn't say that. He says, you know what, I know what you guys need. You don't know what you need, but I know what you need. And right now, you need a test of your faith. Because you're not thinking of me the way you should. And though this isn't always the case, every time the Lord allows a trial into our lives, of course, very often the Lord allows trials, and James tells us this, right? The testing of your faith produces patience. Yeah, it gets tested. And all those things, when they're done, that same passage says, leaves you complete, lacking nothing. You get built up and encouraged and strengthened, and you see the Lord at work, and all of a sudden you're going, wow! There is nothing too hard for the Lord. And so he says to them, Hey guys, let's go for a sailing trip. Now I don't know how he said it. Again, I'm taking a little bit of liberty and license here and proposing to you that perhaps there was a little snicker, maybe a little gleam in his eye, maybe a little, wait till they see this kind of, I don't know. But I know that Jesus not only picked the day, he also picked the boat And he actually was, in doing so, picking the storm. He was God. Didn't surprise him. Fully aware of what was going on. And they launched out. 
But I love this because this is our perception of God sometimes. Anybody else ever thought God is asleep on my watch? I have. I'll tell you straight up, I have. It's like God somehow let me slip through his fingers. I, I you know, after all, I'm one of seven billion people. Maybe he just doesn't have his eye on me today. Maybe he's unattentive to my needs. And I think if we're honest, we can all remember times where we didn't trust God. Now, if you've always trusted the Lord, um, please come share your strength with me, because I can always use some more faith. And as they sailed, he, being Jesus, fell asleep. Now, I don't know when they began to think, man, because have you ever been on a boat out on a It's pretty peaceful, amen? Just kind of bobbing around. I fall asleep. I can see why Jesus would have done that. But I think there's a story behind that. And it says, And a windstorm came down on the lake. No surprise to Jesus. Can I remind you of that? Jesus fell asleep knowing full well that the windstorm would come. He was not surprised by the storm. He couldn't be. He's God. And they were filling with water. And I love the way that's phrased, because what it says was, no two ways about it, the boat is swamped. Now, if you've ever been far out on a lake, the Sea of Galilee is a lake. It's not a sea. It's not huge, rather large. In its location, they're below sea level, with Mount Hermon to the north of it and to the east of it, at over 10,000 feet. There are tremendous winds that come down from the Golan Heights that blow out across the plain of Gennesaret, and it is windy there all the time. And sometimes real winds, so much so that on the south end, when the wind's really blowing, it can actually surf on it. So it gets pretty good-sized waves. Now imagine, and if you go on the Internet and you just Google the Jesus boat and you take a look at it, that was indicative of the boats of that time, maybe 30 feet long, about 10 feet wide, would draw about a foot, foot and a half of water, which only left two feet of the boat above the surface of the water. So if you had two, three foot swell, it wouldn't take very long for that boat to be completely full of water. If you've ever been in a boat, and I remember one time with my parents, uh, my mom and my stepdad uh, were launching their boat down at the Colorado River. And if most of you, if you've had boats or you know about boats, there's a little tiny thing in the stern called a stern plug. And when you store the boat, you leave the stern plug out so that the water, if it rains, can drain out of the boat. It's a good idea to put that back in the boat when you launch it. Now, if you happen to have an inboard motor on your boat, there's a little compartment there, and it's got a little pump in it called a bilge pump. But when the water's coming in faster than it's going out, pretty soon there is a lack of stasis in the water coming in. And it begins to come in faster than it goes out. And I remember we were out on Lake Havasu, and it was blowing like crazy, and all of a sudden I'm kind of, I don't think that water's supposed to be there. And my mom looks, she turns around and goes, mm-hmm, yeah, that's not good. The bilge pump was out. So it was all coming in. None was going out. And all of a sudden, there is the terror of, oh my goodness, we are not getting back to shore. Because the boat gets heavier and heavier and heavier, and it's on the stern where it's already heavy. And you're like, I hope we can go fast enough, and your bow of your boat sticking straight up in the air, and you're... Going like this. It's a paralyzing sense that you get. We're going down. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's not like you can jump out with the stern plug and you know try and screw it in there, though that was a thought. Now imagine you don't have any of those things and the waves are just simply coming over the edge of the boat and you're out in the middle of the lake somewhere. You're going to die. And that's exactly what they say. And so notice how the rest of the story goes. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and they were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him. They're shaking him like, dude, what are you doing? Get up! How can you sleep through this? Isn't it funny how our problems are 
so massive in light of our humanness, and yet we think the Lord doesn't even see them. It's like, oh, Lord, you know, my job, or Lord, you know, my children, or Lord, I've got this issue or this relationship or these things that are going on, and to you, it's like, I'm going to die. And the Lord's just like, got it covered. It's going to be okay. And before you get the wrong impression, of course it's okay that you're concerned, and God understands that. But you have to remember who the dynamic master actually is. He's king of kings and lord of lords. Amen? He's the lord of every storm. He's the lord of every problem. He's the one that can handle anything and everything all the time. He doesn't wake up and go, man, I just didn't see that coming. I know, Man, I am just so displeased with myself. I fell asleep and disaster has come upon you and there's nothing I can do. God doesn't do that. And then as he awoke, they're saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. It's emphatic, actually, in the original language. We're dead. It's over. We're sunk. We get that way sometimes, don't we? I'm dead. I'm sunk. Tax time's coming. You know what it's like. You know what I'm saying. You're filling out the forms. I'm so sunk. I am so dead. Maybe in that relationship, you just, man, I've said everything I can say. It's just dead. you got that problem, maybe with some substance, or maybe you've just got something going on in your life. You're, just, you're like this. You're going, I'm dead. This is going to kill me. I'm perishing. I, I just can't do anything about it. And so I'm dead. Notice the two perspectives. One is from earth, and the other is from heaven. One acknowledges who God is, the other says, it's all on me. Is that not the source of all worry? I believe the source of all worry is when I don't let God be God. And I take things upon myself and I say, you know what? It's all on me. The disciples are going, it's all on us. The boat's sinking. Master, what are you going to do? Obviously, you fell asleep at the wrong time, and now we're all dead. And in effect, to some degree, you might even say, they're kind of blaming him for it. You get us in the boat, you get us out here in the middle of the lake, and I think if we're honest, sometimes we kind of want to blame God for things that are going on in our lives. I've heard a lot of stories of people that are upset with God because something happened in their life, and they're like, well, I don't think you should have done that. I've done it myself. It's like, Lord, why did you allow that? I already learned that lesson, God. I don't know about you, but that's kind of one of my things. I've already learned that lesson, God. Why are you allowing this? And then I realized, well, he wouldn't be allowing it unless I actually hadn't learned that lesson already. And so he arose, and he used a word that's used principally only in the Gospels, only twice in the rest of Scripture. And I, I love the way he does this. And again, Mark's gospel fills in some, some of the pieces and what he actually says. And he says, peace be still. But he arose and he rebuked the wind. He says, wind, get out of here. Wind, you have no business blowing here. Wind, I created you. Be gone. And the raging of the water. He just speaks to the waves. Look, stop. These guys are afraid. It's overboard. And again, emphatically, and there was calm. Because he's the master. And he is a dynamic master. And he moves in our lives in a way that only he understands. Now, if you look at this whole story, it's very hard to even understand at times, well, why would he push all... Maybe some of the disciples should have gone out in the boat. You ever thought that? I have. It's like I'm sure Peter needed to go. Okay? And I'm pretty sure Thomas needed to go. You get what I'm saying? Peter's kind of bullheaded, so yeah, put him in the boat. Thomas lacks faith, yeah, put him in the boat. But John, I mean, he's a nice guy. You don't want to terrorize John. 
I mean, and Andrew, he's a little bit timid, so why do that to him? Can I remind you that sometimes you go through things so that other people can see how you respond to it? That you're actually an encouragement at times to other people as they go through trials that maybe you've already gone through. In fact, Paul addresses that, that comfort which I comfort you. I already have been receiving that comfort from the Lord there in 2 Corinthians in chapter 2. I've already received it, so here it is. But he said to them, notice the lacking ingredient. Where is your faith? Guys, you've been wandering around northern Galilee now with me for weeks, perhaps months by this point in time. You know who I am. You know what I can do. Where's your faith? Not us. God's worked in your life and you know that He has miraculously done things already and yet you don't believe He can still do it in these other areas of life. We kind of pick and choose where He can be dynamic and where He cannot. Where's your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one one another, Check this out. Who can this be? Like they didn't believe it. Can you imagine the widow at Nain receiving her son back? The disciples were there. They've already seen that. The guy was dead. They're having a funeral. The boy is raised. And they're now struggling with a storm. They believed it for somebody else, but they don't believe it for themselves. Anybody else in that club? Oh yeah, God, you can fix their problems, but not mine. After all, mine are very critical. My problems are terminal, and the things that are going on in my life, I mean, nobody else has ever been through them the way I'm going through them. We think that way sometimes, don't we? I think, I think really, if we look at our lives, we do that. It's like we know that God can take care of that person, but when it comes to me, and sometimes it's because the way we've lived our lives. It's the light factor. Well, he'd be right to let me go through that because you know my heart's deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can this be? For he commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him. You, you, you see from the Lord's perspective, there was a natural event, that's the treacherous storms, and there was a supernatural event, that's the cause behind him, that was Satan. And he's the God of the natural and the supernatural. didn't matter to him which one was at work. He's good with both. And so he is the master. And this word rebuked means to categorically state without there a possibility of there being a rebuttal. You, you get the picture? In other words, he says it, it is. And there is no altering the situation because he said it. Remember, he's the prince of peace. And so if he wants peace, peace is. He doesn't have to manufacture it. He doesn't, well, you know, I, I better check in with my meteorologist, Dallas Rains. You know, he, he did not get on his smartphone and go, boy, I sure hope the wind is going to die down up there in the Golan pretty soon because we're in trouble. You see, we look to the natural. He just simply commands the wind and the waves. Hey, look, it's time to end. Because he's God. And so, so important for us. Satan was behind that howling wind. What a way to get rid of Jesus, just drowned him. Except it wasn't going to work. Because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He wasn't just another dude in a boat. He wasn't just some guy that had a fanciful way of being able to speak parabolically to people. He was the King of Kings. He was the great I Am. He was the Creator God. He made the water that made the waves. He's the one that spread the canopy of the earth about it. Creation said, look, here's an atmosphere. He can create high pressure and low pressure whenever He wants because He is God. And so to wrap this up this morning, you see, they had a lapse of faith. Jesus wasn't bothered at all by any of it. He, he wasn't, boy, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I mean, Jeff really got himself into a tussle now. How am I going to get him out, you know? And yet we think that way. I think that way. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, fear is of failing faith. That's what it is. Fear is of failing faith. If you're a Christian, 
The reason we generally have fear, and again, I'm not speaking to every issue of fear, but in a general sense for a Christian, fear for us is, I need more faith. I need to trust God with everything. And I know I can use extra faith. And very often when the storms of life come, uh, it is tough for us at times to see how God's going to do these things. But the question really becomes, how dynamic is your master? Who is he to you? Who is he to me? Who is he to us as the church? There's an old hymn. It's written by Mary Baker. It's the master of the tempest is raging. And one of the verses in it says, No waters can swallow the ship where lies the master of the ocean, the earth, and the skies. Can't do it. It's who he is. It's what he does. It's how he functions in this world. And so we just simply encourage you this morning. Was he up to the challenge? Of course. Is he up to every challenge in your life? Of course. Does he see storms coming? Yes. Does he even push you out into the storms every once in a while? Yes, he does. Does he allow you to get really wet at times? Absolutely. Will he even allow you to get to the end of yourself to where you cry out, I'm perishing? Yes. He does those things. He allows us to need him is the picture here. These guys had no other way but to cry out to the Lord. From a human sense, it was over. But can you imagine the faith that they gleaned from this event? Maybe the next time they're out on the sea, they're the ones that were perhaps snickering a tad going, look, we've been through this already. Already been out here in the middle of the lake, it's going to be okay. Isn't it strange in our own lives when we've gone through those tests of faith and we come out the other side and the Lord has shown himself faithful, which he does if we care to see it. All of a sudden we're going, oh, God's got this. Not Jeff's got it. Not Joe's got it. Not Mike's got it. God's got it. Julie doesn't have Connie doesn't get it. God's got it. He has it under control. Whether it's a satanic storm, Job's whirlwind, no matter what it is, he can simply say, peace be still, and it is. And he wants to do that in our lives. And it increases our faith. And so this morning, when you run into those tempests of life, remember to let the dynamic master have the storm. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the attentiveness of your people and for the beauty of your word, God, as we just simply realize that there's no storm that's too much for you. Lord, there isn't anything that goes on in our lives that hasn't first passed through your loving hands. And God, even if it is a storm, a tempest, a whirlwind, Lord, an earthquake, a loss of a job, maybe something that's going on that we just don't have any answers for. God, you're the answer to everything. And Jesus, we thank you that when you speak, even demons listen. Lord, when you speak, this world listens. When you speak, all of creation is at your beck and call. Lord, there is nothing that's impossible for you. And we pray, like the disciples needed in this time, for more faith. Lord, help us to have more faith in the one who is faithful. And that's you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.